Hello, listeners! This is your host, Merwin, back after a long hiatus. Now, originally, this podcast was meant solely for the domino effect, but I've decided to revive it for more general history assignments that I will partake in during the near and distant future. Starting off anew, I thought I'd give a longer episode, based on the civil rights movement. It's also what I'm currently assigned to, so bonus. So, three events, three racial equality movements, and three peaceful protests, all nonviolence. Let's begin with the Children's Crusade. In late April 1963, the civil rights movement was dwindling down, which is bad, with little support and a dwindling amount of volunteers joining up. Things were looking grim. However, James Bevel, a member of the civil rights movement, came up with an idea to include school-age children, not young ones, teenagers, in protest to help desecrate Birmingham. The strategy involved recruiting popular teenagers from black high schools, such as the quarterbacks and cheerleaders, who could influence their classmates to attend meetings with them at black churches in Birmingham to learn about the non-violent movement. There's also an economic reason to have children participate, since adults risk being fired for their jobs due to missing work and protesting. However, many members were against the idea of children getting involved, one being Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Nonetheless, Bevel told the children to gather at 16th Street Baptist Church on May 2nd, 1963. Over... Over 1,000 students skipped school to participate in the protest, the youth ranging from ages 7 to 18. Yeah, I guess there was some school children. How did I miss that? Whatever. Anyways, the youth held picket signs and marched in groups of 10 to 50, singing freedom songs. They were harassed similarly to any other protester, regardless of their age, being pushed and spit at, and later arrested by police. This caused a stir with locals seeing it on the news, causing outrage at the sight of children being arrested and hosed down by the police while, by the police while peacefully protesting. They had locked up as many people as they could possibly lock up, and they couldn't control anymore. And that's what broke the back of the segregation. A civil order collapsed because there weren't enough police, says Glenn Askew, author of the book But for Birmingham. When influential white businessmen and city officials saw the business district swarming with demonstrators, in in addition to President John F. Kennedy, who demanded a resolution and sent Assistant Attorney General Burke, marshaled to Birmingham, to facilitate negotiations, white city leaders called a meeting with King. An agreement was made to to desecrate lunch counters, businesses, and restrooms and improve hiring opportunities for black people in Birmingham. A lot happens in Birmingham. Now, improvements hardly happened overnight. In September of the same year, the the KKK bombed the 16th Baptist Church, killing four black girls. Yet, the civil rights movement kept on with the momentum. In the following year, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, if you ask me, that seems like a big success. I mean... There were some casualties, sure, but in the end, things were a little less segregated. Actually, a lot less segregated, really. Sure, people were still being racist, but, you know, working on it. 
The civil rights movement was signed a, uh, under a year later. Bada bing, bada boom. A success. Now, what have I done? Two to go. Now, let's go a little further back in time to the 1960s Greensboro sit-in. The first ever sit-in was at a diner in Greensboro, as you can guess, by four black college students. One, Ezell Blair Jr., a David Richmond, a Franklin McCain, and a Joseph McNeil. They were influenced by the nonviolent protest techniques practiced by Mahatma Gandhi, as well as the Freedom Riders, an organization by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, in 1947, in which interracial activists rode across the South in buses to test a recent Supreme Court decision banning segregation and interstate bus travel. But we'll talk more about them afterwards. They were also spurred on by the brutal murder of a young black boy in 1955, and Emmett Till, who had allegedly whistled at a white woman in a Mississippi store. Mississippi store. That's a hard word. Anyhow, the four young men planned their protest carefully and enlisted the help of a local white businessman, a Ralph Johns, to put their plan into action. Starting on February 1st, 1960, the four students would sit down at the lunch counter on, at the Woolworths in downtown Greensboro, where the official policy was to refuse service to anyone but whites. They were the first ones in, and they didn't leave to closing. Police arrived at the scene, but were unable to take action due to the men simply sitting there, awaiting service that they were not be given. By the time the police showed up, Johns had already alerted the local media, who had arrived in full force to cover the events on television. The Greensboro Ford returned the next day with more student, local students from local colleges to join the sit-in. By February 5th, some over 300 students had joined the protest at Woolworths, paralyzing lunch counter, and other local businesses. Heavy television coverage of the Greensboro sit-ins sparked a sit-in movement that quickly spread to college towns throughout the south and into the north. As young black and white people joined in various forms of peaceful protest in, against segregation in libraries, beaches, and hotels, as well as other establishments. By the end of March 1960, the movement had spread to over 55 cities in 13 states. Though many were arrested for trespassing, disorderly contact, conduct, or disturbing the peace, national media coverage of the sit-ins brought increasing attention to the civil rights movement. In response to the success of the sit-in movements, dining facilities across the South were being integrated by the summer of 1960. At the end of July, when many local college students were on summer vacation, the Greensboro World Wars quietly integrated its lunch counter. Four black Woolworths employees, employees, Geneva Tisdale, Susie Morrison, Anithia Jones, and Charles Best were the first to be served. Seems pretty successful if you ask me. Now, let's move back forward to the 1961 Freedom Rides. They were groups of white and African American civil rights activists who participated in bus trips through the American South in 1961 to protest segregated bus terminals organized by the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, again. And were both 
modeled after the organization's 1947 Journey of Reconciliation. Both groups working towards non-segregated buses. A big difference between the 1947 event and the 1961 event was the inclusion of women in the later initiative. In both actions, black riders traveled to the Jim Crow South, where segregation continued to occur, and attempted to use white-only restrooms, lunch counters, and waiting rooms. The original group of 13 freedom riders, 7 African Americans, and 6 whites, left Washington, D.C. on a Greyhound bus on May 4, 1961. Their plan was to reach New Orleans, Louisiana on May 17th to commemorate the 17th anniversary Sorry, the seventh anniversary of the Supreme Court's Brown versus Board of Education decision. That's my bad. Which ruled the segregation of the nation's public schools unconstitutional. The group traveled through Virginia and North Carolina, drawing little public notice. However, the first violent incident occurred on May 12th. Nearly eight days after they first set off and five days away from their goal in Rock Hill, South Carolina. An African-American seminary student and a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee or SNCC, which, remember for later, it's important, whose name was John Lewis, a white freedom writer and World War II veteran named Albert Badlow, and another black unnamed black rider were all viciously attacked as they attempted to enter a whites-only waiting area. On May 14th, two days later, the 1961, of course, the same group were the first to arrive in Anniston, Alabama. There, an angry mob of about 200 white people surrounded the bus, causing the driver to continue past the bus station. They followed the bus in automobiles, and within, when the tires on the bus blew out, Someone threw a bomb into the bus. The Freedom Riders barely escaped the bus as it burst into flames, only to be brutally beaten right, right after by members of the surrounding mob. The second bus, a trailways vehicle, arrived in Birmingham, Alabama. Not surprising, they were also attacked by an angry white mob. What is it with Alabama attacking people as an angry white mob? Many of whom braided metal pipes. Where did they get those? The Public Safety Commissioner, Bull Connor, stated that despite knowing the Freedom Riders were arriving in Alabama and the violence that awaited them there, he posted no police protection at the station because it was Mother's Day. Can you believe that? Photographs of the damaged vehicle and passengers appeared on the front pages of newspapers throughout the country and around the world next day. Drawing international attention to the Freedom Riders, cause and the state of race relationships relationships in the United States. Things were bad to be plain about it. Following the widespread violence, core officials could not find a bus driver who would agree to transport the integrated group, and they decided to ban up the freedom rides. However, one Diane Nash, an activist from the SNCC, see, told you to come in handy, to remember that, organizes a group of 10 students from Nashville, Tennessee, to continue the rides. Which, ooh, might be a bit risky. Hmm. U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, brother of the president, John F. Kennedy, began negotiating with Governor John Patterson of 
Alabama in the bus companies to secure a driver and state protection for the new group of Freedom, freedom Riders. The rides finally resumed, resumed on a Greyhound bus departing Birmingham under police escort on May 20th, which I can imagine caused a bit of a setback, considering they no longer reached their original goal. Then again, they didn't have the original people anymore, so did it matter? Regardless, if violence, unfortunately, does not end there. The police that were meant to protect them abandoned the Freedom Riders right as they arrived in Montgomery, Alabama. Which, of course, they're still in Alabama. When they're attacked by, guess what? Yet another angry white mob. Not surprising. Attorney, Attorney General Kennedy sent 600 marshals just to stop the violence. Later that night, Martin Luther King Jr. led a service at, the, at a church in Montgomery with the Freedom Riders and their supporters. They were, surprise, surprise, once again attacked by an angry white mob. The marshals dealed with them once more. On May 24th, 1961, a group of Freedom Riders departed Montgomery for, for Jackson, Mississippi. There, several hundred supporters greeted the riders. However, those who attempted to use the white-only facilities were arrested for trespassing. Of course. The same day, U.S. Attorney General Kennedy issued a statement arguing a cooling-off period in the face of growing of violence and stop, to stop traveling. This is because many groups were inspired by the Freedom Riders and wanted to ride for their own cause, and they were worried they would get attacked by the, same, by the mob all the same. Not bothering to differentiate if they were with that same cause or not, because a mob's a mob, the mob. Fortunately, Kennedy got his wish, because instead of listening to the Freedom Riders were arrested, they got sentenced to 30 days jail time. Attorneys from, from the National Association of the Advancement of Colored People, or NAACP, or NACAP, as I say, a civil rights organization, appealed the convictions of the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which reversed them. Which is good. Instead of being arrested for like a month. However all, however, all the arrests and the attacks on the riders got them the attention they needed, with hundreds of people joining their cause. The riders continued on the next several months, in, and in the fall of 1961, under pressure from the Kennedy administration, the Interstate Commerce Commission, or ICC, issued regulations prohibiting segregation in interstate transit terminals. So I think it worked out, eventually. Now, time for my favorite part, where I share my personal opinion on the matter. So, I think that peaceful protests, two times out of three, worth the best, but I'm not overly sure if the arrests are worth it. However, in most cases, if you aren't causing any violence, they can't arrest you. You can be arrested for loitering now, though, so... Don't take my advice. I still think it works out, though, even if you get a few bruises in the process, and... Maybe some arrest counts. Yeesh. It's really hard to say how it all worked out. But it did work out eventually, and things are for the better. There's a segregation in modern society. Well, there's still racism, somehow. Which I still think is stupid. But, hey. People aren't being forced out of one place because they have colored skin. So that's something. Well, that is all I got. This is long and tiring, informative though, 
I hope. Until next time, students, teachers, and you history nerds. Bye!